0: Well, for anyone who's spent any time in in an elementary school classroom, or middle school or high school for that matter, we probably all experience a situation where a classmate just can't seem to do anything the teacher asks. So much so that the teacher finds it necessary to take the student aside and have a little chat. Then usually the teacher would come back, uh, leaving the student behind for a few minutes to spend some time thinking about whether or not they want to come back and make some modifications to their behavior before joining the class. And of course, the moment of truth is when the student returns and all the other kids in the class are wondering, is the student going to be agreeable to what's asked of them once again? Or will they find themselves going to the principal's office here pretty soon? And that's where we're left at the end of chapter two. We can all feel the tension as Jonah steps back into the spotlight and he's had some time to think about his actions. Because so far in chapters 1 and 2, Jonah has shown himself to be a prophet who is much more driven by his opinions, his feelings, and what makes him comfortable rather than God's priorities, God's word, and God's clear commandments. If you remember, Jonah chapter 1 started with, with Jonah running and escaping from God. God told Jonah to preach against Nineveh, and Jonah said, No, thank you. He boarded a ship and fled in the opposite direction. And while according to the compass Jonah is heading west, the author uses literary clues to show us more importantly the spiritual direction of Jonah. If you remember at the beginning God says to Jonah, Get up, go to Nineveh, their evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up, and once he flees to Tarshish, everything goes downhill. Jonah went down, not up, but down to Joppa to find a ship. He went down into the ship to go with them. And now in the midst of the raging storm, Jonah has gone down to the lowest parts of the vessel and stretched out and fallen asleep. God said, get up. Jonah went down further and further into disobedience. And while Jonah sleeps, God sends a violent storm so intense that the seasoned sailors fear for their lives. And then finally, Jonah fesses up. He convinces the sailors the only way to make the storm go away is to throw him overboard which they do, they toss him over the side of the ship, and as soon as he hits the water, the storm stops and the water becomes still. And as Jonah assumes his life is surely over as he sinks further and further down into the depths of the sea, a large fish swallows him. And surprisingly, after being swallowed by the fish, Jonah finds himself still alive in the belly of the fish. And God would keep him alive in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, where Jonah prayers a prayer of, thanksgiving, thankful that he's uh, spared. But as we saw from chapter 2, it was kind of a prideful prayer and didn't really repent of much. And that's where we left at the end of chapter 2, after Jonah's spit up or vomited onto dry land. So God's command comes to Jonah to preach to Nineveh. He refused, he tried to run, he ended up in the belly of a fish, and now he sits on dry land and we can assume he's Very smelly, right? Probably has some sores all over his body from sitting in the acidic belly of the large fish. And then this morning in chapter 3, we have an unexpected repentance. So as the narrative unfolds in this this chapter, we'll divide this into three parts. First, Jonah's compliance, verses 1 through 4. Then Nineveh's repentance, verses 5 through 9. And then God's mercy, verse 10. So first, Jonah's compliance. So once again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. We're not told how much time passes between Jonah being vomited up on, on dry land, but God's word comes to him once again. Uh, we, we can assume it probably happened pretty quickly, you know, with the intense, intense actions God used to retrieve Jonah from running away. I'm guessing it wasn't very long at all. Verse 1 and 2 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, get up, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. God gives Jonah a second chance. His commands come to Jonah again. And it's in a very, very similar way that he started the book, if you remember that. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Get up, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So in take two, God leaves no ambiguity as to what Jonah needs to proclaim to Nineveh. You see that? He says, preach the message that I tell you. Or more literally translated, proclaim to them the proclamation that I am about to speak to you. In other words, the message, the message for Jonah is, is not one that he can choose. It's, it's not one he gets to make up. He doesn't get to, get to decide what to say. And, and we're not actually sure what the exact message was that God gave Jonah to preach. He just says, go, preach what I tell you. So God calls Jonah once again to preach to Nineveh. And, and like the tension-filled classroom of the students, wondering how this misbehaving student's going to respond, if you're reading Jonah for the first time, you would feel the same tension. What's Jonah going to do? And as we see in chapter, chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. So we, we, we don't know exactly what Jonah's thinking here. We don't know what he's feeling. We, we don't know much about where his heart is. Maybe he had a bit of a change of heart. Maybe, maybe he just didn't want to end up in the belly of a fish again. And so now he's a bit more agreeable to go do his mission. And surely some time passes while Jonah makes his way to Nineveh. The author keeps pushing us forward in the narrative and starts discussing Nineveh in the last chunk of verse 3. And by verse 4, Jonah's already reached Nineveh. And as we've seen in chapter 1, Nineveh is described as a great city. And if you're reading from the the CSB or or something similar like the ESV, it probably says something like, Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. But there's actually a little prepositional phrase right after great city. And, and, and it's often not, not in the, the main body of the translation because there's a little bit of debate on how exactly it should be translated. Uh, but, but I think the best translation, when you add that little phrase, which generally would be, to God, when you add that back in, I think the best translation would be, Now Nineveh was an extremely great city belonging to God. A three-day walk. So this isn't just a great city because it's on you know, the, the Assyrian top ten places to live list or something. Right? It's an important city because it's owned by God. Just like every animal in the forest is God's and all the cattle on a thousand hills is God's, this city and every other city is God's city. And it's filled with his people that bear his image. Nineveh is, God, Nineveh is God's city and God has a message for his city, so he sends his prophets. And that city is described as a three days walk. Uh, another phrase where there's a little bit of debate is to the precise meaning. Uh, some have said this simply refers to its size. It's a, it's a great, very big city. It takes three days to walk through it, or maybe three days to walk around it. The problem with this is, you know, figure a person could, could uh, walk 20, maybe 30 miles in a day. That's, that's from like here to Hood River in three days. That's a massive city. For the ancient Near East, that would be a ridiculously huge city. Um, so, so I don't think it, it refers to its size. And, and then later on, we, we have historians talking about how after Jonah's time, the city eventually grew to about seven miles in circumference, which one could do in a few hours. So I don't think it's its size. Some have said it refers to its great wickedness. Just like Jonah spending three days in the fish represented near death and destruction, Calling the city a three-day walk refers to the city's proximity to destruction, so the thinking goes, which there may be something to that. But I think what makes most sense is that Nineveh is an important city. And as was normal in those days, when a messenger or prophet or someone important made an official visit to a city, it was often a three-day event. The first day you'd get to the city and get settled in, maybe meet a few people, the next day, you'd probably meet some more officials, perhaps having, have even a meeting with the king and actually deliver the message you have, and then wrap things up on the third day and leave. Normal protocol for that time. So the three-day walk is, is just a way to speak about cultural norms for a city, for visiting a city, uh, not necessarily its size. And then finally, in verse 4, Jonah, Jonah makes his proclamation. In 40 days... Nineveh will be demolished. Very short, very to the point. Is this the entire message uh, that God instructed him to proclaim? We're not sure. Is this everything Jonah said? We're we're not sure. The text doesn't say. There there certainly could have been more to his message, but, but all we have is what the text tells us. But did you notice when his message was proclaimed by Jonah? Day one. You see that? Jonah set out on the first day of his his walk in the city and proclaimed in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. It's a three-day job. He probably hasn't met with any officials yet. He certainly hasn't met with the king, as we'll see later on. But day one, as soon as he's able, Jonah is proclaiming his message. So why did Jonah only preach one day? Well, at least... Part of the reason, as we'll soon see, he, he didn't necessarily need to do it day two and three because the Ninevites beat him to it. His message spread like wildfire through the city. But I also think it's good to ask, why the rush, Jonah? The narrator, after all, makes, makes a specific point that this is a, a three-day city. In the next verse, Jonah goes in one day. There's probably more, but I can think of at least two possible options that come to mind as to why, why he might be in such a hurry. Uh, first, you know, maybe he was so excited about his task that he, he just couldn't help himself. That's one option. Or maybe he didn't really want to be there and he wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. A month or two after uh, my wife had moved to Portland from Nebraska, she went to the post office to do a, you know, the change of address thing, to get her mail forwarded to her new address in Portland. She got there about 4:45 p.m. or so, waited in line for a few minutes, then she, then she was able to get up to the counter uh, and started talking to a guy to figure out what all she needed to do to get this change made. And and the guy wasn't, you know, he wasn't the most motivated person. Um, he kind of hemmed and hawed, and so Michael's like. You, you, listen, maybe just, just tell me what I need to do. Give me whatever forms I need to fill out. Just, just let me know whatever I need to do so I can get this taken care of. And the guy says, well, are people with the same last name still living in, in the place that your mail is currently going? And she says, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's my parents' house, so yeah, same last name. And he says, well, you know, what, what you're going to need to do is just have your parents put all your mail in a big envelope and send it to you every few weeks. <laughs> this is what he said. So Mike, Michael rightly starts questioning his solution, this postal service employee. And, and he says a few more ridiculous things. And, and she's still standing there, confused, trying to think how, you know, how can I approach this from a different way to get this guy to understand what I'm trying to do. He he looks at the clock, sees it's 5 o'clock, and says, Oh, sorry, it's 5, we're closed. Pulls down the divider and walks away. <laughs> That's what he did. 5 o'clock, we're closed. Sorry, it's, our conversation's over. Of course, this leaves Michael with a handful of strong emotions, uh, wondering what to do. I mean, technically, this guy is kind of doing his job, right? He's there. He's interacting with people. They they do close at 5, Uh but he's, he's not in the running for employee of the month, is he? He doesn't want to be there. And he's getting out of there as soon as he possibly can, even if it means uh, cutting off a customer. So I think it's a legitimate question to ask of Jonah. I, is he being obedient here? And I know this, this, it's a phrase that many parents here use, including myself, but, but a simple way to think of obedience is obeying right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Does Jonah obey right away? Yeah, he, he does. He's, he's going. He's on it. All the way? Kind of. I mean, the, the message gets to everyone, but he's, he's, he's good. after Day one, he's out. He's good. With a happy heart? Well, if we've learned anything from chapters 1 and 2, not to mention what we haven't even got to in chapter 4, probably not. He blatantly runs from God in chapter 1 to avoid this job, then in chapter 2, after being swallowed by a fish, he does pray to God and is thankful for being rescued, but it's not a very humble prayer and he never really repents. And while you can't judge a book by its cover, once you get a few chapters in, you have a pretty good idea. So I ask you as I ask myself, how, how are we doing with obedience? Do we just give lip service to the difficult things God commands us to do? Or or maybe do them, but in such a way that shows our our hearts are are not completely on board? And and we have the kids in here this week as well, so I'll specifically ask you. Are you obeying your parents well? Are you doing what God calls you to do in his word? Do you happily and quickly do what you're asked? not always easy. But this is what God calls us to do. So we have Jonah's compliance. Notice I didn't use the word obedience. Jonah's compliance. And now verse 5 through 9, we come to Nineveh's repentance. And let me just read it again because this, this really is amazing. Verse 5, The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. Then he issued a decree to, in Nineveh. By the order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. We must turn, each must turn from his evil ways and his wrongdoings, Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. See, the narrator now focuses on Nineveh's response to Jonah's message. And for some of us who may be more familiar with the story of Jonah, the response may not be as surprising to us because we've heard the story so many times. But surely, for any Jewish person hearing this for the first time, it would be an, it would it would just be astonishing, to say the least, to have a city the likes of Nineveh repent like this is is certainly unexpected. We discussed this a bit back in chapter one, but Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire, where who who were known for for engaging in warfare in some incredibly disturbing ways. As, as one historian notes, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. One of the more tame examples is after capturing victims, they would cut off their legs and one arm so they could force their victims to shake their hands. So it's just an incredibly wicked city. And, And it does make us wonder, at least from a human perspective, culturally, politically, historically, why would such a violent people be so quick to repent? And historians have pointed out, uh, around the same time of Jonah's mission, that, that Assyria had been experiencing a series of unfortunate events. Uh, things like plagues, famines, revolts, uh, eclipses, which, which all for the Assyrians, these were, were taken as warning signs that there were, uh, things were likely to get worse. So from that perspective, we can see why the Ninevites might be ready uh, to not only listen, but, but respond to any kind of official warning, Right? even if it came from an Israelite prophet. And sure enough, a warning came. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And this word translated as demolished is the same word, the same one used to describe what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Where out of the sky the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Complete destruction. And of course, this reference to 40 days brings to mind the, the great judgment of the Old Testament, the flood, when Noah and his family waited safely in the ark for 40 days while God destroyed every living thing on earth, every human, every animal, everyone destroyed by the flood. So this was no warning to be trifled with. And so as we think through Nineveh's response, I want to reflect on a few ways we can be encouraged and even challenged in our own spiritual lives and then some also some ways we can, we can be cautioned as well. So in terms of encouragement, notice three things. Three things about their response. The response was immediate, active, and pervasive. First, their response was immediate. Jonah preaches his message. Next verse, People of Nineveh believed. They they didn't form a a committee. They they didn't weigh the possible options. They didn't do research to see if this Jonah guy should be taken seriously. They didn't try and decide and figure out if, if this God that he was talking about was capable of destroying them. None of that. They just believed. They were confronted with God's word, and they believed it. The people of Nineveh represent the least likely of people to believe, and yet, they believed. And it makes us ask, how, how responsive are we to God's word? We all know in the Christian life, growth can take time, learning can, can come slowly, sanctification is a, a lifelong process, but at the same time, we must strive to respond to God's word Immediately. We need need to let ourselves feel the pressure to respond to God's word right away. Letting the Holy Spirit guide us as we respond immediately. This is what we should be striving for. Second, their response was active. Their immediate response translates into immediate action. Look at all the active ways they responded. It's it's almost overwhelming reading through all, all of it and seeing all the different actions they take in repentance. They proclaimed a fast, dressed in sackcloth. When the king heard of it, he got up from his throne, took off his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, sat in ashes. By the order of the king, no person or animal can eat or drink anything. Every person and animal must be covered in sackcloth. Everyone must call out to God. Everyone must turn from their evil ways and wrongdoing. It just keeps coming. And many of these things we see elsewhere in Scripture, but even for the Assyrians, this this practice of of making oneself uncomfortable, which all these things do, was a way to show self-denial and mourning over one's actions. Not only do they dress in uncomfortable sackcloth, but they, they, they stop eating food and even drinking water. I mean, go, going a day or two without food is, is uncomfortable, but it's not horrible, you know. But going a day or two without water, that's uncomfortable. That's very uncomfortable. How do you think the little kids and infants felt? No milk, no water, no food. Every person in Nineveh was doing this. When was the last time you felt uncomfortable because of the actions you were taking to put to sin to put sin to death in your life. Maybe it's saying no to a, a sinful situation or a relationship or pattern of behavior. Maybe it's removing things from your house in order to avoid temptation. Maybe it's humbling yourself and asking for forgiveness. Maybe it's seeing past your anger and forgiving. And let's be honest, these things can be Uncomfortable. They can hurt, maybe physically, but for sure emotionally. So we just need to ask ourselves, where do we need to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable in order to grow in godliness? It's a good question. And third, the repentance was pervasive. And what I mean by pervasive is, is the call to repentance did not discriminate or show favor to any particular group of people everyone engaged in the order of the king fathers mothers teenagers kids infants officials kings everyone everyone no one gets a free pass and did you notice even the animals the cattle the, the horses chickens you know what all the animals whatever they had these animals they didn't get any food or water and and even they were in sackcloth i mean can, can you imagine the the sight of cattle all wearing sackcloth. It, it's just, in one way, humorous, but they were taking this serious. And, and this is just a good reminder for us that, that there are no legitimate excuses for not repenting of, great, of, of sin. Right? S- sin really is a great equalizer. From the CEO to the homeless person, from, an um, from the popular to the outcast, all must repent. Even Nineveh repented no one has an excuse to be unresponsive to the word of God. And the fact that Nineveh even responded puts an exclamation point on this, right? This is why Jesus brings up Jonah and the Ninevites in Matthew 12. Matthew twelve thirty-eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So so Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, the Ninevites, you guys, even the Ninevites responded to the message of God through the prophet Jonah, who, let's be honest, not the best prophet. And the scribes and Pharisees are standing there looking at, talking to Jesus, the Son of God, asking for a sign, all the while being completely blind to the fact that the Son of God was literally right in front of them. And while Jesus Jesus is not physically standing before us, and the people of this world today, in time and history, he did come. He did die. He rose again. He ascended to the Father's right hand. So we have no excuse. The sign, far greater than Jonah, has come. And even the people of Nineveh will stand up in judgment of those who ignore Christ. And condemn them. So we have, we have no excuse. Okay, so those are the three areas that we can be encouraged and even challenged in our own lives. And now I want to move on to how we can be cautioned from Nineveh's response. Certainly, how the Ninevites responded is good and right <clears throat> and encouraging. To be commended, it was it was a good thing. But was it enough? Could they have done more? No hope in the God of Israel. It's converted that they place their faith and hope in the God of Israel. There is a bit of debate here as to whether or not the Ninevites are fully embracing the God of Israel or if it's simply an amazing act of repentance and them being sorry for their evil ways. Um, And I I think the the interpretation that makes most sense here is the, the Ninevites did not fully embrace and come to a covenant relationship with God. I don't think they did. And I say that for a few reasons. First... When it says they believed God, and when the Ninevites refer to God, they use the generic term for God, Elohim, rather than the personal covenant name for God, Yahweh. So for all we know, in their minds, they might just be responding to a God among many gods. And second, they never make any sacrifices. They are sorry for their sin, they are remorseful for their sin, They fast and wear sackcloth as a demonstration of this. But if they were to fully embrace God, it would have been entirely appropriate for them to make sacrifices to atone for their sin. And third, in all of their fervent actions in response to Jonah's message, it never says they put away or denounced all their false gods and idols, of which they had many. And we may not notice the absence of some of this, Um, very much, if it weren't the fact that it's really kind of highlighted for us because of how the sailors responded back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Remember that the sailors tried calling on their false gods, but it didn't work. And after they found out it was the God of Israel who was responsible for the storm, they instead prayed, not to to a generic God, they prayed to Yahweh. And it says they, they even feared Yahweh. And then they offered sacrifices to Yahweh and made vows. The sailors believed and turned to, and the text leads us to believe, they entered into a covenant relationship with the one true God. And in chapter 3, the text does not allow us to assume the same of the Ninevites. And this bears out historically as well, only a few decades after Jonah's time. The Ninevites are... Once again, an incredibly violent and evil city. So this just serves as a caution and reminder to us that that simply repenting of and feeling sorry for our sin, it's not enough. It's, It's just not enough. The Ninevites even engaged in many actions. Good actions demonstrating that they had turned from their evil. But if you're not turning fully to God and embracing him and his good ways and placing your faith and hope in the work of his son to actually and legitimately deal with and atone for your sin, then we still stand condemned. So this is just a good reminder. As as we find ourselves in sin, we can't just feel sad about it. But as we turn away from our sin, we must turn toward God. God and embrace him. And now finally we come to verse 10, God's mercy. We receive the response of God to the Ninevites. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah proclaims, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Chapter 3, verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So God does not destroy Nineveh after all. And right away we come, come to an issue that, that gets a lot of attention and discussion, that being that God seems to change his mind. He says he will destroy Nineveh, and then he doesn't. And really, this is a topic that can't be fully unpacked and discussed as much as it deserves in one sermon. Um, one could easily preach an entire sermon alone on this topic, which, in the providence of God, that's exactly what Jared did just a few weeks ago, if you remember that. He preached an entire sermon on this topic as it shows up in 1 Samuel 15. And I would certainly encourage you to listen to that sermon again as you're reflecting on Jonah 3 this next week. But since he so recently preached that sermon. I'm not going to take a deep dive into the topic. I'll just make a few comments. So what do we make of God seemingly changing his mind about Nineveh? Well, first, just a reminder that while, while we certainly can know God in a genuine, real, and intimate way, we cannot know him exhaustively. God operates in categories that we cannot, as humans, fully comprehend. So we come to topics like this with humility, knowing that we don't know what's going on behind the scenes in the council of God. And that's okay. And second, it's almost as if God knew we would feel the tension of him seemingly change his mind in a passage like this, because he clearly states elsewhere in Scripture that what he does with the Ninevites, saying he will destroy them and then deciding not to, is absolutely within his prerogative. Remember Jeremiah 18? I brought this up back in chapter 1 because it's passages like this that made Jonah not want to go preach to Nineveh in the first place. Listen to Jeremiah 18, 7-10. <clears throat> At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent consider concerning the disaster I had planned to do it. And at another time, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build up and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to me, I will relent concerning the good I had said I would do to it. You see that? God, God is not bound to our assumed progression of his plans that we infer from something he says. And I'll say that again. God is not bound to our assumed progression of his plans that we infer from something he says. So while we may assume God must destroy Nineveh because their evil has come up before him and he says he's going to destroy them, God in no way contradicts himself by saying, no, I won't. They repented. I'm going to be merciful. Do they deserve to be destroyed? Absolutely. Absolutely they deserve to be destroyed. For the wages of sin is death. And God does not claim here that he's giving them what they deserve. This is completely an act of mercy. God saw they turned from their evil, and he relented. And one final thing we see here, that that even as God says he will destroy Nineveh because of their evil, he is telling this to his prophet Jonah instructing him to go tell this message to Nineveh. Why, why would he do that unless it was within the realm of, of possibilities that he would be merciful to Nineveh? If he wanted to destroy Nineveh, it's perfectly within his right to just destroy Nineveh. He could just rain fire down upon it like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't need to send a prophet or warn them for that. And hopefully we say amen to all of this. Because while we may be tempted to, do, tempted to want Nineveh destroyed because of their evil, while we may want Nineveh to get what they deserve, if we're honest with ourselves and we look closely, we see a mirror reflecting our own evil hearts that rightly deserve destruction. And praise be to God, God didn't send us his prophet Jonah. He sent us a prophet, priest, and king. He sent us his only son to not only warn us of destruction, but to atone for our sinful and evil hearts to provide a means so that God could not just be merciful for a moment in history like he did with the Ninevites and then destroy them later on. But he offered his son so as the ultimate sacrifice so when we place our faith in him, we can enjoy everlasting and eternal mercy. Mercy that we, we so very much do not deserve. But we indeed get as we are raised to new life and united to his son. The defiant prophet Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, then was rescued, and shown mercy by God, only then to sit down and pout, as we'll see in chapter 4, because God dared to show mercy to a people who didn't deserve it. While Jesus spent three days in the grave, only to be raised from the dead, not not to pout, but to make God's mercy available to those who don't deserve it. To people like the Ninevites, to people like Jonah, People like us. Does, does the mercy you've been shown by God compel you to judge other people who are evil or to point those people to Christ? To the one who destroyed death on the cross so that all who come to him could have everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this text, we're we're aware that, that we are often much more like Jonah and even, even the Ninevites than we'd like to admit. But just as you've shown them mercy, you've been merciful to us as well. And we ask that the story of Jonah and, the Nineveh, and Nineveh would cause us to, to worship you and glorify you even more as we rest in the safety and security we have in your son. Amen.